hope is a different thing entirely. Uh, hope is not motivated by fear. It's motivated by love. And we are involved in environmental work because we love the beautiful creation the Lord has gifted us. And we love our neighbors and we love ourselves. And all of this is an act of love towards God, worship towards God. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Kevin Hargaden and Philip Pyle. If you've missed the first part, backtrack and listen to episode one of this two-parter. And if you're following on, then without further ado, here is the rest of our conversation. Enjoy. about your new book it's called The Parish as Oasis an introduction to practical environmental care so I haven't read it really looking forward to reading it it seems really relevant to my role as well I believe that the heart behind it is to help local churches contribute to the healing of the environmental crisis could you give us the elevator pitch about why you wrote this book and why we should all read it Uh, in my work in the Jesuit Centre I'm heavily involved in Irish environmental policy Um, the nuts and bolts of uh, who pays for the electric car chargers and where are they located and what kind of planning permission is required. Really boring stuff, but essential stuff. We face the challenge of climate despair because we're day by day confronted with the problems and the intensifying and accelerating uh, feedback loops that are occurring in terms of climate breakdown and biodiversity loss. How do we resist to despair ourselves? It's the Christian gospel. Uh, the, the sure and certain knowledge that the Lord remains the Lord even in the age of climate breakdown. And what we wanted to do was to write a book that encouraged people practically to do what they can, where they can, using the knowledge that they have because they know their neighborhood, that doesn't trade on despair or anxiety or grief. So it's a book about the climate crisis that's entirely practical and that doesn't mention the climate crisis until the very last chapter. Because our argument is environmental care is something that Christians should have been doing all along. It's intrinsic to the faithfulness of the gospel. And we, we got lost for a whole bunch of reasons, mainly because mammon has distracted us. But uh, we should return to the, uh, the quiet task of creation care, which is ultimately a mode of loving our neighbor. And in doing so, we will also contribute towards climate adaptation and we will have opportunities for discipleship and mission. So we, we're, we're saying that the parish can be a site of renewal environmentally, socially, and spiritually. I love that. I can't believe that you've not mentioned the climate crisis to the end, but that is perfect. And I think something that I hear a lot whenever I'm doing my work is, oh, the church is just getting on board in this newfangled bandwagon. It's just trying to be cool and hip. And actually my response in my heart is, this is ancient. This is a return to ancient rhythm. It's a return to Eden. It's a return to our original calling um, and what it means to be a human that is placed physically on the earth with the breath of life breathed into us, literally formed from the dust. So I cannot wait to read that, Kevin. Um, Philip, you were here in Northern Ireland with us um, last month, last weekend, wasn't it? It feels like um, longer ago than that. But we visited Jubilee Farm, um, which is a local regenerative farm. And we talked with lots of different local people um, about theology and farming. So I hope you'll agree it was a great time together. And we had 
some really interesting conversations about what a local response to these big picture systems, the global economic environmental crisis and what they might look like. Um, and I wondered after our session last week, what are your thoughts, Philip, on how we live in this tension? How do we live as locally placed people in the midst of these global systems that we're all a part of? Thank you, Lauren. It was wonderful to be back in Northern Ireland. Uh, it was great to be working with my close friend, Matt Williams, and the Jubilee Farm. And there's just so many things going through my mind as I reflect on that day we had together. I think what was fundamental for me on that day was there is something about how God has created us uh, in our being that is, we are creation, we are part of the community of creation. And we were, when we were walking through those fields and looking at the pigs and looking at the river that was there and the trees that were there, we are part of that world. We are, that world is part of us. And if we are going to grow in our relationship with God, in our relationship with our neighbor, I'm wondering whether that's going to happen through learning to relate rightly with the non-human created aspect of creation. And gardening is one aspect of it. And I've been saying to a lot of my friends and colleagues that so often in the climate crisis discourse, we are very quick to point out what we are against. We want to get to net zero. These, these things, of course, matter. But also we need to talk about what we are for. And, and for me, learning to garden and learning to spend time with animals, I had a sabbatical in the US and I was in Virginia and spent quite a bit of time with the Mennonite community there and working with animals and working on a farm. It transformed my life. It transformed my life. And I think I would want that for every Christian. It's sad that this uh, neoliberal capitalist ideology has destroyed the farming sector. Because if you can't make profit, then it's not good enough. But is that all there is to farming, is that it's able to make profit? Or is there something more fundamental to who we are as human beings that call us to be this, this word husbandry, the word shepherd. These are all terms that are used. And we, you know, for us who live in cities, we don't even know what these words mean anymore. And so I, I'm more and more convinced that if we're going to have a right relationship with God and right relationship with neighbor, it might even start with learning to rediscover that right relationship with creation, of which we are a part. I so strongly agree. Um, Philip, I, I feel like there is a wonderful illumination that comes from considering agriculture on that question of the individual action and the system change that's brought about by policy. You know, Northern Ireland, for example, is a region that is heavily dependent on agricultural trade. And the environmental conversation can be understood as a threat to farmers and to agricultural communities. And again, I think that that is interesting because it, it reveals the way in which the environmental conversation is centralized. And it isn't properly democratic because uh, actually, objectively, the people who know the environment the best in our societies are the farmers. And the reason why the farmers are not able to engage fully in the question of environmental transition is our policies, as Philip has said, constrain them towards uh, economic productivity. And a factor that we haven't mentioned yet at all, debt. Farmers are terrifyingly in debt as a result of the intensification brought about by government policies and you know things that happen at the EU level um, for the Republic of Ireland and lingering for the United Kingdom. Um, they, they've taken on a huge amount of debt and they have to pay the debt. And, and we Christians need to pay attention to the way in which debt disciplines us. Uh, debt is a claim in the present that, that actually takes a share of our, our future. 
Because the moment that we have to take a loan out to do something that's essential, like go to college or get a home or um, stay in business as a farmer, then we're making a commitment to continue to behave in this fashion for 10, 15, 20 years, even if in the interim we discover that the way that we're behaving is destroying the environment. So farmers are trapped on the one side by technocratic environmentalists who live in a city and think about the environment primarily through spreadsheets or kind of romantic ideas of organic farming. And they're trapped by their commitments to the bank. They have to make those payments next month. Otherwise, they lose their farm and they lose their house and they lose everything. Um, so uh, uh, on an individual level, it's, it's, it's barely enough for us to just say, oh, let's be grateful for farmers. Uh, no, we need to be, a, we need to be willing to, to uh, bear the brunt as consumers of um, slightly higher costs to supermarket. Or uh, if those of us who have the money should be investing in community agricultural policies that are able to sustain a living wage for our farmers so that the transition is able to occur. You need the action from the ground in terms of consumers, and you need the action from the top in terms of system change and policy. So the project in Jubilee is, of course, exciting for a whole bunch of reasons for, for me as a church leader and as a theologian. I think it's, it's such a simple and brilliant idea to teach theology in the context of our, our Eden vocation to till and to cultivate. But I also think that Jubilee is uh, one of these microaggressions against mammon. It's a co-op owned by more than 100 people. Uh, it's surrounded by these heavily indebted farms that are intensively producing. And here we have this little haven where uh, we're properly embedded in nature. Uh, the pigs are cared for. Uh, the, the water is clean. And we don't have massive nitrogen runoff because of uh, fertilizer abuse. It's a wonderful microcosm of uh, individual change pointing towards the potential for system change. And that's the kind of project that the church ought to be seeking out and getting involved in, to go back to Chris's question about what does, what does pursuing holiness look like. Um, so listeners should definitely seek out the Jubilee project, and those who have uh, the resources should definitely back it, because that kind of project has a transformative potential. So around the world in two, let's kick off in Uganda, where an increase in Ebola cases has caused alarm. So current rates are low, but the UN data shows a 39% fatality rate, which means that any rise in rates is a real cause for concern. The current outbreak is caused by the Sudan strain of the disease, which is harder to treat and for which there's no vaccine. The spread is made worse, as always, by movement of people. Uh, often fleeing violence and conflict from, from places like DRC and South Sudan and across the region. We'll fly over now to Indonesia, where on Monday the 21st, a deadly earthquake struck uh, the island of Java. At least 268 people have died, more than a thousand have been injured and tens of thousands have been displaced from their homes. The quake has destroyed houses, schools, hospitals, and many other pieces of infrastructure and caused widespread power cuts. Please pray then for everyone affected by this disaster and pray that Tear Fund and other organizations like Tear Fund will be able to quickly reach those in greatest need. Finally, as we here in the UK struggle with high inflation rates, and we all know the very real impact that has on both public and personal finances. At Tear Fund, we're working in countries like Lebanon, where the rate of inflation is over 150%. 
places like Pakistan with a rate of 56% or Burundi with an inflation rate of 22%. And so these rates, alongside things like the strength or weakness of the local currency, make a real impact on ordinary people's spending, um, as well as the effectiveness and buying power, I guess, of every pound of tier funds budget. In other words, economic instability around the world is making the work of ending extreme poverty that much more difficult. Please continue to partner with us in prayer for some of these places. That was the world in two. Kevin, do you want to just give us a, a quick plug for your book? Um, is it for church leaders? Is it for ordinary people? Is it for Irish people only? I mean, it's, I, I was talking to a friend in Paris who said, uh, who asked me when I'm going to write the French version. It is an Irish book. It uses 20 examples of initiatives that are already present in the Irish church. So we're not banning Scottish, Welsh and English people from buying it, but they will have to engage in an act of cultural translation. Um, but we primarily wrote it for lay Christians who recognize that there's this crisis around the environment, but they, they're paralyzed about how to act. And they want to be able to integrate their environmental concern with their uh, faith commitment. And so this, is a, uh, this gives you a kind of theological framework and then lots of practical tips. So our ideal situation would be that a handful of people would buy it and that they would use it as the basis for uh, eco-action groups within their church. Wonderful. Maybe, Lauren, there's a wee book club uh, to be formed in the new year. People get their hands on Kevin's book. Lauren and Philip and Kevin, let, let's wrap this up. Um, I want to just ask you one final question, which we try to end our episodes on a hopeful note. Uh, and so within your specific context and maybe the specific expertise or passions that you've described in this episode, what is it that gives you hope for tomorrow or a century's time? the church, the climate, uh, the systems we live in. What gets you up and feeling hopeful in the morning? Kevin? At the Jesuit Centre, we're pushed towards despair by our work a lot. We make the distinction between optimism and hope. Uh, optimism is what Irish environmentalism trades on at the moment, uh, which is a kind of motivation that anticipates success. You know, the kind of Greta Thunberg prophetic speech has convinced people that we're about to make decisive change. And now all we need is to have the citizens put their shoulders to the wheel and, and kind of push this over the line. The problem with optimism is that when uh, the success doesn't arrive, you, you collapse into despair and your motivation disappears. Hope is a different thing entirely. Uh, hope is not motivated by fear. It's motivated by love. And we are involved in environmental work because we love the beautiful creation the Lord has gifted us. And we love our neighbors and we love ourselves. And all of this is an act of love towards God, worship towards God. So hope is different from optimism because optimism is the strategic pursuit of success on a noble cause. And hope is doing the right thing without anticipation of success. So it, it is the right thing for me to dedicate <laughs> my working life to boring questions about uh, where uh, e-chargers e should be placed and what planning permission should occur for that. Uh, even if no transition occurs, that's the right thing for Christians to be doing. 
And the source of that hope is the, the knowledge that uh, the Lord is the master of the cosmos. There's not a square inch of creation over which Christ does not say, this is mine. And uh, he, he's going to see all of our little small efforts. They have an eschatological significance far greater than any temporal impact. Uh, so hope is different from optimism. It's grounded in love. And ultimately, it's, it's the recognition that the Lord has gifted us this. So it, is, it should be a great delight for us to, to make whatever contribution we can to preserve it and to see it flourish. Amen. Amen. Indeed. Uh, if I could add a couple of comments as well as we wrap this up. Um, I'm grateful to the Lord that Tear Fund exists. Tear Fund's existence in a deeply secular world as a, as a corporate entity that seeks to be Christ-centered is a witness to Christ. There's many things we can say about Tear Fund that needs to improve, change, we can do better. But the fact that there is Tear Fund in the world and that we want to be faithful to Jesus and have in God's ecology an entity called Tear Fund exist and has an instrumental value in certain things is hugely significant. So I, I take this role in Tear Fund as a gift from God. The thing to say locally for me is we need to value the opportunities we have to have conversations with people who sometimes go through a whole day without having had a conversation. Like my friend Diane, who lives in Romsey. These conversations we have with people are gifts that we can receive from and share with. And, and not to sort of think that it's all about, yeah, I am busy and I'm, I just end up spending so much of my time on, on my computer doing my work, but to make time to have conversations with people, people you meet in the park. We've lost that. You know, we don't even talk to our neighbors these days because we're busy doing something. And when I see that happening, it gives me hope. And the final thing I would say about hope, there is something about God's promised future. To quote Moltmann in his book, Theology of Hope, he talks about the God of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. We live with this sense of longing for the kingdom to come. And we can't bring it about, but we pray for it. We, we, we act our prayers out, but we long for God's kingdom to come. When the, the weak are exalted and, and, and those that have been forgotten are remembered. And when that happens, we rejoice because creation is created and will find its fulfillment in God's kingdom. So it's not optimism. It's not technocratic. It's about prayer. It's about lament. It's about waiting. It's about that almost that um, expectancy, a, a pregnant mother waiting for the child, birth of her child. It's, that's how we live uh, in the light of the promised future where God has said, I will put everything right. I will make all things new. So for me, you know, little conversations with people are signs of hope. Wonderful. And you both ended on a, I guess, a theological note, uh, just like we started and encouraged. I think you've encouraged, I hope our listeners to recognize that we are all theologians. Philip, you've, uh, you've belittled your theological position, but uh, as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we have a theological identity and therefore um, an obligation to think and recognize theological nature of systems and structures and so on. So guys, that has been a real privilege uh, for me and for Lauren to listen to. Uh, and please, um, Philip, we'll speak again in, within Tear Fund. Kevin, please know uh, the, the prayers and blessings of, of Tear Fund in Northern Ireland uh, for you and the work in um, the Jesuit Centre. Uh, I'm sure maybe there'll be uh, further conversations to happen after this. So bless you. Lauren, what a rich conversation. Uh, we are both absolutely buzzing after listening to that. 
uh, such a real privilege to be in the room. Uh, as we wrap up, in just 30 seconds, give us a highlight from the conversation for you. Oh, it was so rich. It was really, really hard to choose. But I think I loved um, the hopeful conversation about the role of the church in these systems and actually how the church can collectively sort of adopt these microaggressions against the kingdom of mammon. And also the reminder for us to have a long view of the church and sort of looking back over history of the big shifts that have happened in the faithful role of the church in facilitating that. And that actually that took generation after generation of faithful living, truly living out what it means to follow Jesus and follow the whole gospel. So one encouragement for us that even if we're not seeing these radical changes right now, as we want to, to just keep being faithful and keep being connected to our local community and truly following Jesus in every aspect of our life. Yeah, what about you? I think what struck me was something Kevin said around, we tend to fall back into just doing good without maybe costing us much uh, and actually potentially even even giving the tear fund might fall into that category where it's it's still remote and it costs us money and there's a real sacrifice there but actually an investment in my local community with my neighbors in relational proximity we talked about Chrysler that costs me time and it costs me emotions and it costs me energy um, maybe as well as money and and the church may be, well, as Philip said, for actually me, not just the church, me personally, to, to not step back, but actually step forward into the kingdom breaking in here. Um, Lauren, let's assume that masses of people are listening and they have been knocked over by the conversation. Um, is there something somebody could read next? Is there, can people get in touch with you to explore a response? What can we do next? Yeah, absolutely. I think obviously picking up all the resources that will be in the show notes, Kevin's book, um, The Abundant Community Report that Tune Fund have released, I find that personally really, really encouraging. There's one of the ideas we didn't actually talk about on the podcast um, today, but um, that is within the resources, this idea of being part of a shared household and creation and humanity together, being part of this household that we all tend to together. And I personally find that a really compelling idea, so I think definitely read the report. Um, any of our campaigning, any of our acting with your life as well as your money is another way that we can take that next step in faith. So at the moment, um, we are preparing for our rubbish campaign just going to launch in March. And a huge part of that is going to really try and unpick what is our relationship with consumerism? What is our relationship with wealth? And how can we actually undo the absolute systematic production of stuff and then the waste that comes after that so I recommend really keeping an eye out for that in March but in the meantime um, also reading any of Ruth Valeria's books her book um, Just Living really transformed my life in the way that I think about my connection with these global systems um, but also just get in touch with me if you want to think about it and explore because there's lots of people who are having these conversations we're having these conversations um, in a work context and I think just it would be great to gather people together to get in touch with me um, or you Chris and we can always talk further Wonderful. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it either on social media or send a little personal share to your church leader or to an elder or to a colleague uh, who you think might enjoy and be inspired and encouraged and challenged by the listen. That's us now and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>